This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. David Hunt, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much, Cheryl. We're already having a bit of a laugh. I can see that we're going to have a bit of fun with this podcast. David is an award-winning historian, podcaster, and TV presenter. His debut book, Gert, The Unauthorised History of Australia, won the 2014 Indie Award for Nonfiction. He has also written picture books alongside a sequel to Gert called True Gert. And today we're talking about Gert Nation, which is volume three in the series. The sequel to the sequel. The sequel to the sequel. Okay, tell us a little bit about Gert. Uh, Gert Nation or or Gert? Are we going all the way back to the beginning? Yeah, tell us about the concept and how we got here. Look, sure. Um, What I did was I wanted to write a history of Australia, a country that I love, with perhaps the most unique and fascinating modern history in the world, I wanted to write that for a broader audience than the sort of people who traditionally pick up a history book. And I think humour is a great way of connecting with uh, a group of readers and also telling telling stories. So my books are a narrative history. There's There's a definite sort of narrative through line. And I suppose I employ several of the techniques that fiction writers use in my non-fiction writing. Um, we have this unique history that we are a, a, a new nation. We were started by a bunch of, you know, pickpockets, handkerchief thief, prostitutes, dumped on the other side of the world um, by by Mother Britain um, with a seven-to-one male-to-female ratio and a monetary policy that involved having no money where rum becomes the liquid currency of choice. That is a unique history. And so I think the Australian story is a great one to be told and I've thoroughly enjoyed telling it. Mm. Okay. I don't know how to say this and and you can kind of agree or disagree, but I think history is perspective and is Mm. often very personal perspective. And what I get out of reading your books is very different to say, you know, what somebody else gets out of reading it. But what I want to talk about is I always look at it from a diverse background and I feel very sad sometimes at the country that it's become. I feel as though we could have been so much better. Yeah. We could have been so much better in terms of climate change. We could have been so much better in terms of multiculturalism, in terms of diversity and whatever. And I feel governments, and particularly John Howard, use hatred as a tool. And we became haters. And that really, really upsets me. Now, however, I was telling Damien that and he kind of disagreed with me. So talk to me about that. Well, look, Gert Nation is actually a book that looks at the origins of that, where race was weaponised and used as a tool by nationalists for the specific purpose in the case of some of the fathers, and they were all fathers of federation, to bind Australians closer 
together, the people from these six disparate colonies to make them one. And they, they found that to create the identity of an Australian, they had to find some un-Australians, some people who Australians could define themselves with reference to. And so white Australia became central to the building of the Australian nation at the turn of the 20th century and the demonisation of, first of all, the Chinese, then broadened to the Asian races generally, Africans, Pacific Islanders, we had the most inward-looking xenophobic approach in the world, even worse than, than that of South Africa, who actually picked up some tips from us. And that turned the six colonies or the eastern colonies, which had the highest of standard, standard of living in the world, the highest GDP per capita at the time, that looking inwards of ourselves and saying we're going to concentrate on our own spectacular whiteness, we lost the benefits that immigration had to offer. We lost our connections with Asia, which we'd been building for the first half of the 19th century. We lost so much. And what I suppose I've seen with the beginning of this current uh, century, this millennia, is perhaps some worrying signs of a return to that with the tamper, the demonisation of, of certain immigrants. And there are echoes between the past and the present, which I, which I make quite explicit in this book. Do you know what I also feel? And again, I'd love your view on this. Mm. When COVID hit and we shut down the borders, mm. I thought, wow, what a great solution, right? I think everybody should have been shut down for a time. And mm. we had all done it as a global community really mm. quickly. Mm. We might not have gotten to this stage. However... As time went on and the shutting of state borders and the compliance of Australians, yeah. I started to worry, is this more about xenophobia than it is about a global epidemic? Well, isn't that wonderful that we now, our xenophobia is, is anybody down in, you know, the Albury-Wadonga divide. It's mate against mate and state against state. One of the things I found interesting in, in, in writing Girt Nation was the incredible hostility that the colonies had towards each other and how there were difficulties to overcome in becoming this place called Australia. Um, in 1887, Sir Henry Parks, the Premier of New South Wales, introduced legislation to rename New South Wales Australia because he wanted New South Wales to be the dominant colony in any Australian nation. And the Victorians, who were the wealthiest, uh, the largest colony at the time, said, uh, why don't you name yourself Convictoria? Because that's what you all are. You're all convicts. Um, and so you have this incredible hostility between the colonies, in particular Western Australia, which didn't want to be part of Australia. And it was only the fact that gold miners from the eastern states were sitting on the colony's wealth out in the desert uh, and were, were wanting to secede from Western Australia and create their own state, Oralia, the gold state, and join Australia, leaving basically Western Australia with a lot of sand that brought the Western Australians on board. So what COVID has shown is that some of these underlying faults in Australian nationhood uh, which I had thought had, had largely disappeared, have probably merely lay in dormant. And um, that's been fascinating to look at the way that the Federation works. And, and look, I actually think it has worked quite well in COVID. And I think that the ability to close state borders has been part of Australia's success. 
But the idea of responding to a situation from shutting yourself off from the rest of the world is something that has got Australia into the trouble in the past and something I think we need to be as perhaps a bit of a risk going forward. I felt that we were too comfortable with it. Too comfortable with COVID or too too comfortable with borders closed? I think... think John Howard said of our history in 1996 that we should feel comfortable and relaxed about our past because Mm. the balance sheet of our history is one of heroic achievement. Successive governments have wanted to make Australians feel comfortable. We are a very comfortable nation and since World War II have not really been exposed to any great adversity. This is the first great challenge, I think, since World War II. And the idea of keeping Australians content perhaps means that sometimes we don't have some of the dynamism of some more ambitious uh, pushing nations. The she'll be right attitude is, oh, yeah, we'll just continue along with it and go to the footy and and cook our chicken curries and... And uh, And buy our expensive houses. And buy our expensive McMansions and tell each other how how great we have it. And that was what Donald Horn warned about in the lucky country. That you know we are lucky, but we're not making our luck. We're we're perhaps squandering it. And I think Australia is a great place. I think my books reflect that, but they also offer some cautionary lessons that I think can be applied today. I do too. Do you think that the relationship between Melbourne and Sydney will ever recover post COVID? The premiers just had it out, didn't they? Uh, they they, they, they yeah. did. They yeah. did. And look. Um, that's that's a long-standing one. Uh, you see it most commonly today in the desire for the states to steal sporting events from each other. You know, oh, we'll have your Grand Prix, we'll we'll build a b- better horse race, and that was what you saw in the eighteen eighties, where Melbourne plans to have the first international expo in the Southern Hemisphere in eighteen eighty, and Sydney, at vast expense, decides it's going to get in first, and so you have this these competing expos held between these two colonies with each attempting to one-up one each other. For New South Wales's uh, contribution to the, the Melbourne Expo, one of the exhibits it sent down was a giant statue of Premier Sir Henry Parks carved from coal, <laughs> that great Australian resource. And, you know, Scott Morrison might turn up in our parliament yeah. and, and fondle a lump of coal like Gollum with the ring, but, <laughs> but Henry Parks actually had the sheer bloody chutzpah a <laughs> carve a giant statue of his likeness in coal. And that's what being an Australian is all about. <laughs> what do you think the perception of this country is looking inwards? Like, say, if you were from China or Asia. Oh, looking outwards. At, 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 no, at looking at us. Them looking at us. Oh, look, I think, I, think, I think views vary from around the world. I mean, the dominant view in the 1980s was that kangaroos were hopping through the main streets. Oh, we, people still think that. We, we spent, <laughs> you know, koalas, we're in telegraph piles and we spent, all, we spent all of our time... You know, throwing another shrimp on the barbie. Um, And I think that, you know, Australia has encouraged that image overseas of the beautiful place, friendly people, lovely beaches, good food. Uh, That's what a lot of our international marketing has relied on. And I actually look at, uh, you know, in my history books about some of the early immigration campaigns. uh, In this one, pretty much the same. Richard Daintree, a Queensland tourist campaign organiser, has all these photographs of, you know, strong, strapping men with big bushy beards sitting on logs, smoking cigarettes, 
enjoying a cup of tea and a bit of damper and the idea that Australia was some sort of workers' paradise where you could come here, eat meat three times a day and grow into a six-foot-two muscular bloke and spend all of your time sitting on logs and not actually doing much work. So we've always projected the image we want the rest of the world to see us outwards. I suspect somewhere like China now does not have a very good impression of Australia, and I tell the story in this book of the the fear that Australia had of Chinese invasion in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, and how that warped policies internally. And the Chinese actually sent out a couple of commissioners to inquire into um, the way that the Chinese were treated in Australia. And they went back uh, and wrote a report for the emperor that was that was fairly unflattering of the Australian approach to dealing with, with their countrymen. Unlike the Chinese, impeccable behaviour over there, I imagine. <laughs> well, look, one of the really fascinating things about writing this book was about how much of it is about the Australia-China relationship. Yes. And how in 1900, you know, there were New South Wales, Victorian and South Australian troops occupying Peking, as Beijing was then known, putting down the Boxer Rebellion, forcing the, the Dowager Empress to flee into the mountains. And that was part of... 80 years of continual Western humiliation, taking territory from China, forcing opium on China. You do understand, I think, reading Girt Nation, why the Chinese do have a bit of a chip on their shoulder about their treatment by Western powers historically. And I think a lot of that is coming home to Bruce now. And I think learning more about the history of Australia-Chinese relationships may help us to um, navigate those shoals with a bit more nuance going forwards. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what about Europe and France? What do you think their perception of Australia is? <laughs> well, you know, the French, uh, I, 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 again, I tell the stories of yes. in, in Girt Nation of the conflict with the French in the Pacific and how Britain was terrified that the Australians' desire to incorporate various Pacific islands into their colonies would trigger a major international crisis and, and lead it into war with France, which it didn't want to do. It saw the Australians as being incredibly irritating and gung-ho with the way that they were treating the French in the Pacific. And there were historic tensions in the 19th century 
Uh, there were historic tensions, obviously, in the 20th century with the French desire to blow up various atolls and to sink, um, you know, ships in, in, in Auckland Harbour, Greenpeace ships protesting that. So there's, there has been tension with the French in the Pacific. But I think our cack-handed handling of the submarines now is, is typical in many ways of how Australian politicians focus on their domestic audience rather than the messaging for an international partner or relation. It's again this, how is this going to play in the living rooms of the Shire rather than how is this going to play on the world stage? Well, I mean, I've got a view about that and I think that the You've got a lot of views, Cheryl. (laughs) And I think... Very opinionated. (laughs) That's my problem. Read my reviews. That's what they say. I think that the current, uh, that Scott Morrison, I mean, really can't think about anything outside of the Shire. I think that this country is limited at the moment because of his limitations. And I've, got, I've, I've, I've actually got a couple of Scott Morrison gags in, in this book indeed. An interesting historical fact for all your listeners, Scott mm. Morrison's great-great-aunt uh, was the poet, the communist poet Mary Gilmore, oh, uh, who, who travelled off to New Australia to help found a socialist commune in the jungles of South America. And I've got a very amusing illustration in the book of Mary Gilmore holding a hose in New Australia with, with a reference to Morrison's ancestors' hold, ha, hose-holding capabilities compared with his. And did you send him a copy of the book? Uh, look, I, I, I have not sent him a personal copy of the book, but perhaps mm. I should. Mm. Now, America or Australia? Um, so we got uh, into bed with the Americans. Yeah, look, we've, we've, you know, if you think in 1812, Britain was at war with America and, and burning down the White House, Australia was enthusiastically part of that. For part of the 19th century, Australia feared American invasion. Uh, there was a major diplomatic blow up when the Americans decided they wanted to own some islands off the coast of Western Australia to mine the the phosphorus, the bird poo there, which almost came to blows. But Australia has, since the coming of the the Great White Fleet in 1908, um, tied itself incredibly closely to America, uh, strengthened those bonds after World War II. uh, And we're now not just all the way with LBJ, uh, we're all the way with America um, and, and every American president that there has been. And, you know, you understand why Australia does that um, as, a, as a middle power, which sees itself as isolated from, by geography, other countries in the Anglosphere. It, it looks for a strong protector. It had Britain. Uh, and now we've, um, you know, we've put most of our eggs in Uncle Sam's basket. I wonder how well that's going to work for us. I have this view that Australia punches above its weight. Yeah, Absolutely. Twenty-five million people. Yep. Every time I could be reading the New Yorker, I could be reading. You know, I read a lot of news and in or in t- listening to a podcast, and all of a sudden I'm listening to a podcast by you know about two Americans by two Americans, mm. and then Australia comes into it. I mean, you you probably said that. And I think, oh, I didn't even know that Australia had a connection, and that happens all the mm. time. Mm. And why do you think that is? Australia, I think now and from the 1970s has been a very outward looking country um you know i i did the backpacker pilgrimage where i went and, and toured the world we're, we're interested in the world around us um i think the world is 
therefore interested in us because, you know, various Australians turn up with backpacks and say, hello, I'm an Australian. Um, no, and our streets aren't full of kangaroos and people find that interesting. Australia has has historically punched above its weight in in science and in industry, and I tell some of the stories in in Girt Nation of how we transformed world, world agriculture. What we did with sheep, what we did with wheat, was world leading and and turned us into the world's richest nation. What we did with mining was revolutionary. Although we had American assistance to do that, President Herbert Hoover actually started his professional career in Australia as the, the mine manager for the Sons of Gualia gold mine. And, and it was Herbert Hoover's sort of know-how that transformed Western Australian commercial gold mining. So, you know, we've got somebody like uh, Hargraves um, in, inventing several of the key components that became the modern aeroplane. And you have all of these inventors at the back end of 19th century Australia who were great at inventing things and absolutely shit at making money from them. Mm-hmm. And we had this open source culture where we'd come up with these great inventions and our inventors wouldn't file patents. They just put them out to the world and some canny American would whack a patent on it and make an absolute profit and then prevent Australians from making it. You think that's happening with the UG boot now. Back in the back end of the 19th century, it was routine. Australian ideas were being ripped off all over the world. The Australian ideas that were being ripped off all over the world that were good ideas, we led the world in creating modern democratic institutions. We gave the world the modern secret ballot, uh, independent electoral commissions, uh, universal woman suffrage, first place where women could actually run for parliament, postal voting, enabling the deaf and the blind to vote. We really led the world in in setting up responsible political government systems. And we've exported many of them throughout the world where in America, the, the secret ballot's actually known as the Australian ballot because they took it from us. So I tell in Girt Nation the story of some of those great achievements that we that we did export overseas. Mm. Okay, so there is a move, or maybe not, but I feel that there's a move and a mood towards conservatism, towards right-wing thinking, like it's out there, we know it. Did it start with Trump? Did it start before Trump? I don't know. And it frightens me, actually. Like when I'm feeling happy, sometimes I think about that and it really does make me quite scared of the future of the world, not just Australia, because I often think I don't know how they want this world, they being the right-wing extremists, I don't know how they want this world to look. What, do we all go back to where we came from? I mean, how does that work? Because it's largely based, that view is largely based on fear and hatred. Conservatism, by definition, is the defence of the status quo. Conservatism is preserving elements of your society. Um, Liberalism or radical reformism is changing that. I think it's not so much the conservative right that's an issue today, it's the more radical right that is wanting to change the status quo. Uh, one of the things that you'll find in, in, in reading Girt Nation is that there is the Liberals are pitted against the Conservatives at the back end of the 19th century into what Australia would be. Would it be a cap in hand to Britain? Would the, the landowners maintain a con- control and monopoly of the land? But it was Liberal reformers like Alfred Deakin who actually introduced new institutions, new ways of governing, new rights for workers. Uh, he, you know, he was a liberal and he was a radical. I think the problem today in, in Australia is 
that because there has been a degree of comfort in our history, we do attach ourselves to the status quo. And when we, we encounter troubles, people who suggest a move to the right appear attractive because they offer easy solutions. The easy solution is to blame somebody else rather than to look at, to look at yourself, which is why Alan Tudge, as you know, the Minister for Education, wants to control the historical narrative because history is about looking at yourself. History is about looking at the reasons why you're here and where you're going. It can be used as a tool to plot forward directions. So when a politician tells you they want to tell you a history that looks at only the good bits of history, that glorifies Gallipoli as the birth of the Australian, the birth of modern Australia, you get a little bit worried because politicians who use history to promote a nationalist agenda, um, history has proven it's a slippery slope from that to nationalism and then uh, uh, it, you can you can slide into fascism, which is always a bit of a worry in my book. Yeah. So I think what I try and do in my writing is look at those tensions between conservatism and liberalism and, you know, I I plonk fairly firmly on the liberal side where you're looking at constant reform, constant improvement rather than status quo or in terms of some of the radical right trying to imagine an Australia in the 1950s and, and I mean, painting that, that as, as the future. How is that even possible? What do we do with everybody? I often, when I speak to people that, that mm. think that way, tell me how that looks like. How do you actually make that happen? You know what? Do I then have to go back to Lebanon? Oh, look, I, I actually, I'm a bit more optimistic here. I think it's going to be difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, yeah. in, 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 in the past, the woman's place was the home. Um, the man's place was in the office or on the battlefield or in the church or in the parliament. I think the fact now that we have so many women in, in positions of authority in business, in politics, is something that we haven't had when we've had these conservative pasts before. And I can't see women, for example, being willing to trade away those, those hard-fought freedoms. And I think that if you know that your freedoms have been hard-fought for, you want to defend them for other people as well. You want to defend them for, you know, the waves of successive migrants who've been, you know, marginalised before being welcomed into the fold. Yeah. Um, no, I agree so with you. I, I'm, I, I, am, you I, am, I am I am more optimistic. Yeah. Okay. Why has this country been one of the last countries to really start and to take climate change seriously? Why has that been? It's become, uh, It was a political yeah. issue in the last election. Why? Look, Australia is, is the driest and most arid continent on Earth bar Antarctica, so it's the most barren of the settled continents. Australia's always had a, a difficult relationship with its environment and overusing its environment. And I, I, I tell the story in Gertnet Nation of the Federation drought, how that, coupled with the rabbit plague, you know, drove modern Australia to its knees because we had overgrazed land, we had taken so much water from the land that some of the, the farmlands, the soil had a high uh, salt content. Australian history has been a rush for environmental exploitation to build wealth. That is the defining characteristic of Australian history. Going out, taking large swathes of countryside, putting cattle or wheat on it, 
digging a hole in it. That is how Australia became rich. Mm. So you understand from a historical perspective that we haven't been great custodians of our environment. I think that whilst we continue to look at our economic success as being intrinsically linked to what we dig up or how many farting cows we farm and eat, we've got problems and we really need to do what we have done at previous times in our history and diversify our economy looking more at the services sector, the knowledge sector, the manufacturing sector, rather than being a country of primary producers, which is what we become when we get lazy. Mm. We're out of time, David Hunt. We, we're going to have to get you back in. I mean, there's more conversations to be had. Yeah. Oh, well, look, I've, I've covered politics and history and xenophobia, all of, all of my favourite things. We didn't do religion. Yeah, I do a bit of that as well. Oh, you do? You come I do, I do. Uh, well, I just yeah. so you know, I was raised a Maronite Catholic and now I'm an yeah. atheist, okay? so I've got it. Message, <laughs> message received loud and clear. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.